to another episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea, and my guest today is just such an incredible and passionate woman that I cannot wait to introduce you to her. With over 700,000 Instagram followers, you probably already know her, but if not, you should. Maisha T. Hill is a mental health activist, speaker, and entrepreneur passionate about mental wellness and empowerment for all. She runs the advocacy site, Check Your Privilege, and her newest book, Heal Your Way Forward, just released this month. Maisha was a guest on the podcast in early 2020, but as we share in our conversation, a lot has changed in both of our lives and stories since then. So Maisha's back to talk about her own personal journey with mental health and what the last couple of years have taught her about her own healing journey. Then we also dive into some specific topics from her new book, like White Tears and the Great White Awakening. Y'all, this is an important conversation and I hope it encourages you to take a closer look at your own mental health and the importance of personal healing today so we may all move forward to heal the world of tomorrow and generations ahead. Let's just get started. Maisha T. Hill, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And Maisha, you were on, I had to go back and look because I'm like, we talked, but it was a long time ago. It was actually, we probably recorded in April of 2020 because your podcast was actually released May 15th of 2020. Yep. So like two and a half years ago. And I was trying to think in my mind because I was looking at the timeline. The Great White Awakening was kind of just starting, but you know, George Floyd was May 25th that he was murdered. But we did have, you know, Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery around our conversation. But I usually, when I have a guest back, I just do it as a bonus episode, but this is not a bonus. I feel like you and I both are two completely different people than we were two and a half years ago. So I think this is just like a brand new conversation of where we are now. Like, I don't even want to listen to myself in that conversation. I know (laughs) there's no room for like shame or embarrassment, but I'm like, I knew, I, I think I was just starting my own journey then. And I'm like, I knew nothing. I don't but even want to. That's, that's the part of feeling your way forward though, Andrea, right? Yes. You have the you of two years ago that if the you of today looked at, you could have compassion and grace for your, mm-hmm. who you were as you evolve into who we're, const- we're constantly becoming. So right. it's actually beautiful. And if people are listening, I would actually say, go listen to us two years ago. Oh, and listen to us now and look at the healing journey, the inner work we've done mm-hmm. and the grace and compassion that, okay, we're still growing and we just keep going forward. You're right. You are so right. Because that is a, a tool of white supremacy yeah, that you wants just, to you keep us like, like embarrassed and ashamed of that yeah, former yeah, self of like, oh gosh. yourself. And I think that's, yeah. that's the beauty of this book is like, okay, you didn't know what you didn't know. Your mm-hmm. parents might be racist. All right guess what? You get to take responsibility for your life and you get to choose shame. And yeah, no shame. And that is what I love about you. Not that you're like, Oh, make me feel all good. And, but (laughs) you are very grace filled and you look, you realize those are tools of white supremacy to want to shame people or cancel people. Um, Mm -hmm. and that I think is why your book really spoke to me as I shared with you, um, before we started recording your new book coming out in August is called heal your way forward. The co-conspirators guide to an anti-racist future. I have it so marked up, but as I told you, I think that's why it just really 
spoke to me because you hit on those things like shame and vulnerability and grace and where we've come, not like as an easy, make it all comfortable for us, but you're very much leaning into the discomfort. You very much give us freedom to like mess up. That's just part of it. And there's no end spot and we're healing and it's not linear. And so anyway, it's just, it's a, it spoke to me so much, Maisha. So thank you for your work that you continue to do. And you share, you share your own journey of like, you mess up too. You fall under white supremacy's total, like calling at you and bringing you in every day. Like even as soon as today, (laughs) every, cause you know, I think what we forget is we're all in entanglement every day, right? Like we know we shouldn't shop at Amazon, but our sense of urgency and the need to want it tomorrow, we keep shopping on Amazon. Not to guilt or shame any of us. It's just our human nature. Like a lot of this is really about human behavior. I barely like, since even writing the book, I don't say anti-racism. I don't lead with that. I lead with healing and liberation, mm-hmm. abolition, restorative and transformative justice. Like those are like the key words that I've built into my personal brand now, because after, you know, being a deacon and on the path of ordination, there's really, you know, a lot of people have said, you're so merciful. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm human. Like, I just look at people as human beings. I don't mm-hmm. understand this merciful, like graceful. I think if we all just take a step back and look at all of us as, as human beings, not dismissing white supremacy or racism at all, we actually would be able to say, this is really just behavior change and giving people space to, you know, there's something called the cycle of change where you're constantly relapsing. Just let people have their relapse. No need to like, oh, you white person. Oh, you black person. Like everybody's just relapsing, trying to figure out how to survive in this matrix of oppression. Right. I'm going to stop. I'm going to pause and put a pin in that because I want to dive into those parts of your book, but I feel like we have to backtrack. I think I'm I'm really eager to get into your book, but I want to backtrack with people that don't maybe know who you are. Can you just tell us just not your, your story to start with, but just in a nutshell, who you are, where you live in this world, what your day-to-day life looks like, just those sort of important things. And then we'll dive into a little bit of your story and then more of your book. Yeah, no problem. I'm Aisha T. Hill. I reside on Southern Paiute land, which is the home of the Moab tribe of the Southern Paiute um, here, in, also known as Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, I am partnered with three children. My day looks like deep cleaning, hopping on a podcast, going to more meetings, doing admin work for Check Your Privilege, getting ready for a conference. Like my days are really almost pretty packed, but most of our days are, right? Like we're living in a COVID world and just trying to figure it out. So I'm an imperfect partnered mom of three, raising children with autism, ADHD, myself, neurodiverse, high-functioning autistic. People don't know that about me. How old are your kids? 17, 11, and nine. So it is a busy house. I've got a 19 and a 13 year old. So that's busy enough. And then you've got one more in the mix and do yeah, it all. So. It's so much. Yeah. Football and horse camp and just never a dull moment. Trying to balance that. And I think again, we'll dive into your book, but how you talk about trying to balance that career and needing to, money to provide, but then also your family is, is part of it that we don't Thing, mm-hmm. but that's that's part of this healing journey of figuring that out too yeah in the last two years I definitely had two and a half years has definitely been like family is over everything yeah. check your privilege can wait evil sign can wait every other thing can wait because 
if my family's not happy and peaceful and joyful and nothing else matters. You definitely share that in the book that you had to work on realigning that because as your business and check your privilege grew, family went down the list. Oh yeah. Family was at the total bottom. And it does. I mean, it does for all of us. Once we start getting caught up in what we, what the world and white supremacy says matters. So let's talk about, let's go back farther in your story though, with the start of your family. Cause I want to share, if you don't mind sharing a little bit about your mental health journey that brought you here, because you say my breakdown led to my breakthrough. This was very early in your book. My greatest pain birthed my birth, my greatest awakening and led me toward the path I am on today. So when you had three little kids, I think you said your youngest was like 12 days old. You had a breakdown. Like you felt like you're done with this world or thinking thoughts of suicide. Mm-hmm. Would you mind just taking us back a little bit to that time and then how you're able to say that breakdown led to this, this breakthrough. Yeah. You know, at that time, like 10 years ago, I was heavy into heavily Christian. I'm a de- Christian defect at this point. <laughs> um, <laughs> right there with you. Right there with you. Yeah. Yeah. I just was like, I'm done. I am a statistic. I am on welfare and all of the systems. No one sees any value in me. I don't see any value in myself. So it's time to go. Mm-hmm. Had a plan. A friend made a call. My mom came and got me, took me to the hospital got sent to the mental health institution. And then the very first day I was there, a waking day, because I got there in the middle of the night, there was a Bible. And you know, when you're a person of faith and you see that Bible, you're like, there's a plan here. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's the coolest thing about any spiritual practice is that when you see a text or something, a statue or something that reminds you of faith and hope, it can kind of take you back to purpose. And I was always actually kind of raised like that, you know, this idea of, you know, what you go through doesn't end you, like you're resilient. And there's a resilient, there's a difference in my opinion between the resilience that I heard as a child and strong black woman mm-hmm. stereotype. Um, so yeah, I saw the Bible, I was like, okay, I was in this hospital, like writing sermons, literally, I still have them, writing speeches, writing, writing. If I were to look at that book now, I could actually see how I teach what I teach in Check Your Privilege. Mm-hmm. If I go back and look at all the things that I journaled and wrote about, and and even today, I'm like, I'm actually living that. I like It's like I wrote myself and my healing into existence. So yeah, I, that happened. A pastor came and I was like, hey, you know, we need to start talking about mental health in the Black church. I want to start a thing. He's like, we'll support you. I got a diagnosis in 55 minutes. Of Multiple diagnoses. So yeah. many. And I was just like, what? How do you, how do you do that in 55 minutes? Like that didn't feel normal. Mm-hmm. I was heavily medicated. And then uh, after seven days, I missed Thanksgiving of 2011. So after that, I went back home and still struggled. I tried to, my brother called me once, my oldest brother, Calvin. He's like, what are you doing? I said, I'm looking at a bottle of pills. I'm going to take them all. I had my daughter here. My son was like drawing on the wall. <laughs> my oldest was in like second, third grade. And next thing I know, the police came, knocked on my door, the sheriff, like the sheriff, sheriff, not like the person who works for the sheriff. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. You know how we mask? I got a phone call from your brother. Mm-hmm. Jack some pills? Yeah. Gave him the pills. I want you to let you know I called your mom. And I get choked up when I tell this part. And he said, you know what I'm supposed to do? I'm like, no. He's like, I'm supposed to take your kids, put them in foster care, medically arrest you, essentially. But looking at you, there's something about you. And I think you're going to be okay. And after that, I had a couple more episodes. And then finally, I think I talk about this in book. My mom was like, get it together. 
you sign your kids over to me or you figure out your last place of happiness. You go back there and we'll figure out the kid situation. So I grew up in California and in August of 2012, I, I had actually had a job uh, as an instructional aide at a school. I took that very last paycheck for the summer. It was like $300. And I bought a 200 and some odd dollar train ticket from Naperville, Illinois uh, to Emeryville. I left my kids with my mom because California was like happiness, joy. That's where I remembered everything. You know, my cousins let me stay with them in their basement. I got to California, had a full-time job in a week. And four weeks later, I flew my kids into the Bay Area. My mom brought them, had her own apartment in two months, got them all their diagnoses within the first year. All the things that the doctors told me that, oh, they're fine. They'll grow out of it. You know, how you have the medical system is something else. Got them all diagnosed within a year, got them all serviced. And really was living my life the best I could as a mom. I was single at the time, a single mom at the time. So yeah, my journey with mental health has just been always pushing up against the medical system. And Andrea, it wasn't until I saw a Black psychotherapist or a psych, the one who could prescribe medication. Psychiatrist, yes. Psychiatrist, yes. He was like, tell me about yourself. I'm like, I'm Black. I'm a single mom. I work full time. I have a part-time side hustle. I have three kids with all these disabilities. I gave him my whole history. And he said, what was your diagnosis? And I said, bipolar. He's like, no, you're not. You're not bipolar. Mm. Think of everything you just said to me, all the hats you have to wear, all the trauma you've experienced in the world as a Black woman and taking care of these Black kids. Like he just broke it down. And he's like, Mm. you've been misdiagnosed your whole life. That's PTSD, anxiety, and depression. And did that lead you then on a path toward real healing when you got... I think him saying that to me, like opened up the door because after that I was like, okay, you know, prior to that, I was also in school and I started my Brown sister speak was the former project I had. Mm -hmm. Um, So between having Brown sister speak in like 2015, 2014, 2015, and then seeing this psychiatrist, (laughs) it was like, all right, what does healing look like for you? Yeah. And it wasn't until actually my brother died in a car accident mm-hmm. on my, my dad's side of the family. And my mom introduced me to BTS. As crazy as that sounds, that's actually what my healing started. BTS mm-hmm. helped me heal from a lot of mental stress. It helped build a rela- better relationship with my mother. BTS is like a center of healing. So even if I am depressed or anxious, you know, my mom will send me a BTS song. She's always done that. So yeah, my real healing started, I think, after the psychotherapist. I think the healing started when I got on the train to Cal. I know it started when I left to California. So 2012. And, you know, at that time, but you were immersed in the white world, the white, the church, all you were. Oh, all the things. So how, as a black woman, did you realize like, no, I am worth healing. I'm not going to give into this. I'm not going to take my life. That's what they want. I'm I'm going to to build healing in my life and move forward? I think when I first got the confirmation that my son was autistic, Mm. because I knew it, I just needed the doctor, a black woman, Mm. actually confirm what I knew Mm. was true. That's what I knew I was worthy, that the systems, something's not right with these systems. So I started getting training in parent advocacy and supporting families with IEP. Like my, if you, if I had a resume, you guys would be like, God, Lee, you have all these certificates. Wow. Oh, I know. I was reading your book. And I'm like, I think she's a doctor or something by now. Like you, <laughs> yes, you have, you have, you've had, but you've had to learn. 
I've had to learn, you know, your healing and survival and your families, you've had to learn all of this. Right. Right. I've had to learn about alternative medicine, like Reiki. Right. I had to learn about the coaching industry, life coaching. I had to take what I knew about marketing and event production and, and restorative and transformative justice. And there's so much there, you know, and it's evolved me into where I am today. And so you really developed a passion, not just for your own healing, but other women who are black, indigenous and brown. Yeah. Um, I, I, I grew it. I, it was really like other women of color because I was looking and I was like, something's off. We shouldn't be re- like, something's not making sense. I couldn't put the pieces together, but I became passionate about that. And then the way that Check Your Privilege was birthed was in an interaction with a white woman where I was questioning my mental health, but she was okay. And I'm like, there's something off here. So then I recognize now, four years later, since starting Check Your Privilege, four and a half-ish, oh, we all need healing. Yeah. It's not Black people need healing, Indigenous people need healing, white folks, need, we all need it. Yeah, we and I think it. that's that clicked for me a lot with your book because it's not this either, or it's like, you are very much an advocate. Why people need this mental health healing too, because their mental health illness is affecting us. Yeah. Essentially that's really what it is, is, mm-hmm. is that's why I no longer say I'm not anti anything. Like I think uh, Lisa Renee Hall reposted my post. I'm not anti anything, to be honest with you. I am pro healing, pro liberation, yeah. pro community, pro harm reduction, pro restorative justice, mm-hmm. restorative and trans. Like I, I cannot have the binary hyper-focus on racism when I know at the core of everyone is an inner child who was wounded by parents, whose parents wounded them. And then in the DNA and all of us, we carry trauma from way, way back when. This is a lot deeper than just the, oh, you're white, so you're just inherently racist. I, I remember like when I think about teaching that in the first Breaking the Addiction of Privilege, I am so grateful that the community, not me, called me in and said, we need, this is shaming Maisha. We need to change this because you don't operate from shame. Mm. Oh yeah, you're right. Let's do this together. You know what I'm saying? Like it's not this, it's this, we, we are so caught up to say, Oh, you're racist. Oh, you're oppressive. But Rachel Ricketts said it best. And I believe it came from Paolo Freire. We're actually all oppressed oppressors. Mm. The race racialized privilege is just one of multiple privileges that all of us have but we tend to hyper-focus on it because actually that is what keeps us the way this shit is functioning is and not leaning into healing is by just hyper-focusing on white people are bad, black people are lazy, Asian people are quiet. Like the whole dynamic is so harmful. We don't, we're not taking a step back to say, oh, okay, actually that person has PTSD from their enslaved African ancestors and what they're carrying is a residual reaction to having to survive in a white supremacist system. Or that white woman behaves that way because she has a father wound. Her father was heavy in the patriarchy, made her feel like she had to win at all costs. So the way, her, like we said last time, the way her father treated her, not just the white man at the workplace, the way a white woman's father treated her was probably how a white man at work treats her. So of course she's gonna take that oppression and oppress other people. Because I understand that there's a healing she needs to do. Literally a unpacking of the inside stuff that we don't talk about, which is why when white women or white men or whoever says it, I don't even want to label it anymore. Burn it all down. 
and F men. And I'm sitting here like, no, you're not saying F men from a good space. You're saying it from a father wound, from an oppressive system wound that's rooted in patriarchy. And no one wants to see this as anything deeper. We just want to memorize the words and keep it moving. And that's why we can't have any sustainable change. Oh, so many things are going through my mind. First of all, I'm tearing up because I think you are so spot on to the healing that we need. And that is what sets your book apart from all the other, we'll use the term anti-racist, but you are so much just about, not just, but about individual healing. And I think that's why it spoke to me, somebody that's finally gotten herself in therapy this last year. And with an IFS therapist, it's like, Yes. Cause as white people, that's why we're trying to prove like, I am a good white person. I am because we're working in this binary and we've been told, no, you're bad. Okay, fine. I'll just prove I'm good. And that is yeah. not what it's about. I prove my virtue. I prove my virtue by sending you a cash app. I'll prove my virtue by taking your course and never being letting myself be in community. Yes. So yes, I am for individual and collective healing and liberation, but we're on like, I'm teaching from the lens of we got to be in community. We got to, we're being creative and figuring, we don't, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Can I just say that? Do you know how liberating it is to tell people, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. A higher source gives me information and we just go. And if it doesn't work, we don't beat ourselves up. We just keep, it's just, it's really a healing work. I, I can't, I can't yeah. say it enough. And that's liberation in itself. I mean, I, like you were saying at the beginning, how we've changed each of us in the last two and a half years, you have as well in your in your teaching and liberating and healing style. One of the chapters in your book that I want to touch on is the white tears one. Cause I was surprised. And again, your, your book is so different. Cause I'm like, wait a second. She's saying white tears are okay there. I think the whole title is the chapter is there is room for white tears. Now we need to like explain that a little bit, but that's what I'm talking about that your book is framed so differently, but I think leads to real healing and accepting grief and moving through it. Do you mind just touching on that a yeah. little bit? So, so there's weaponizing your tears, yes. okay? which is also rooted in Ruby Brown has a great book that's called White Tears, Brown Scars. She breaks it down. Very amazing. Beautiful. There's a notion of the damsel in distress syndrome, which is where a white woman can basically cry wolf and a white male, because that's the protector, will go believe her and everyone around her gets harmed. The best example of this is Emmett Till. We have this woman who's still alive today and has admitted that he didn't do anything wrong, but a young black man from, young 12 year old black boy from Chicago was murdered based on what she said happened. And so that was a weaponization of an experience and of her tears for her own benefit. And now we see years later, it benefited her and there's still no cause to justice. And we see that in the workplace. We see that in, rela in relationship, the relational dynamic, Bell Hooks talks about this in teaching to transgress. Until black women and white women sit together and confront each other and talk through the fear of being in community that's rooted in patriarchy and the servant served role, right? Servant served y'all role that exists between black women and white women. Not, we're doing this in for, for why are we doing it? It, it? It's not serving a purpose. And so the goal is, is that who am I? Because I am not speaking for any other anti-racist educator because people don't, they, they think I'm crazy because I said it. And I'm, I'm okay with folks. Excuse me, that was ableist. I'm okay with people labeling me for seeing somebody else's humanity. We can't teach humanity and then tell people not to cry. We can say, hey, why you keep repeating the behavior because you're not making space to grieve 
to cry, to let it all out. And the reminder is not to weaponize that grief against people of the global majority. And so I think it denies full autonomy and it denies humanity constantly telling anybody, don't cry, suck it up. And let me tell you something. I heard that as a child. So if I heard as a child, suck it up, you don't cry, you gotta be strong for everybody. And that didn't come from my grandmother. My mom said it out of frustration and anger, you know? I know why people said the things they said when I was younger, because I've done, I'm on my healing journey and I can forgive that. But if someone told you that growing up and then you're trying to do this anti-racism quote unquote work, and you're told you can't have feelings and you can't cry, decenter yourself. So you want me to be a robot. You want me to basically deny myself as a living, breathing, movable entity so that you can exert power that you have not had that your ancestors did not have because of my ancestors colonization you want me to sit and just shit and not be whole and human i have to say this real quick andrea if you are listening to this and you are in anybody's work who's shaming you for your feelings who's shaming you for not continuing after the great white awakening You need to run in the other direction because no one should not uh, be allowed to feel human as they build into wholeness and healing their self. Telling people that you can't cry and this, we're we're just reinforcing what the oppressor did to us, specifically for me. I'm not speaking for nobody else, but knowing that my Black ancestors, my African ancestors were abused the way they were and were told, see, this is how deep this is, Andrea, not to cry, suck it up. And then- A lot of our parents reinforced it out of fear of the white man and the abuse endured during slavery. I don't have time to live that way anymore. None of us should. Right. No one should be saying, don't cry and and suck it up. What we should be saying is cry, just don't weaponize it. Don't weaponize your tears against people of the global majority. Also, not every person of the global majority can hold space for a white person's tears. It takes a very special and unique individual to do that. Right. Don't go crying on the lap of your black friend all the time. Absolutely. That's another boundary. So like, don't weaponize it. Don't go crying to your black neighbor. I'm such this horrible person, please. No, right. No, but that's the other piece of it. We don't know how to practice boundaries either because what has been enforced in us is harmful and punitive. And so some, to some people, a boundary can feel punitive. I could keep going about that. Chapter. I know, I know, I, I know. That's what I said. I have like 500 page marks here. Well, not 500. <laughs> that long, but every other page is marked here. So we've mentioned it a little bit, the Great White Awakening. And I didn't know if I was going to bring that up, but let's go there a little bit because I think what you share about people shaming white people for like being awoke for a little bit and then going right back into the routine. But you kind of have a different message to, to white folks who maybe at that time seemed awaken and then just went back to life. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Cause I'm thinking last time we recorded was like, right about when all that was start to start to why folks were starting to wake up. Yeah. I mean, I had a former friend who always would say, once you see, you can't unsee. And I've also been harmful. And I've also done some, said some things like that are just not appropriate to repeat. But when I think about an awakening, I think about my first awakening, which was, I would say, the birth of my first child mm-hmm. and how I'm in college and I'm going to be a better mom and yes to everything, the surrender that comes with the awakening. And then guess what happens? I'm human. So I go back to old behaviors. So an awakening does not necessarily mean that you're woke. An awakening is not permanent. 
an awakening is like a, okay, this happened. This is, this is big. This is heavy. Okay. All right. What happened was, is that we all got awoken and some of us got awoken and rose in power. <laughs> some of us got awoken and diminished our self-worth and our self-value and became exhausted from both hands, power over, power under. What happened with white folks is so many mixed messages were being told who you should be, who you shouldn't be, overwhelmed. It was a lot of mixed messaging. And for a person that is new to this, ghosting is part of the process. I know that, you know, after doing this for years, it's like, that's a human behavior. People don't know how to stay consistent. We only know comfort. That's why addictions are the way they are in the world today. Literally, we can be awakened. And yet, if we don't have the steps to stay on the journey, if we're not reminded, like I'm a relapse, literally, that's why one of my most popular teachings is breaking the addiction of privilege, because it's normalizing the cycle of change. Yes, you get awakened, you pre-contemplate, you contemplate, you take the steps, you got sustainable change going for like 90 days. And guess what? Something happens. And what do you do? You fall back. You fall back to comfort. You fall back to what feels good because this journey doesn't feel good. So we got awakened. So we're all still woke, but we've all just relapsed. And what I love about this, it's a social social psychology theory of the cycle of change. We should put it in the show notes. <laughs> Every time you fall down, there's an upward spiral. There's an upward spiral. Every time you walk out the work, every time you disappear, and then there's always the constant reminder to recommit, which is for some people, it was these January 12th hearings or whatever it was. I The hearings that on Washington, D.C. that I didn't, I didn't watch them because America constantly gaslights us. So I just don't watch a lot of the things. What else happened recently? A lot of things have been happening. Right. I mean, school shootings. We've got school more black, black men being shot still. Like, it's still going worse. I don't know. God. So because all of us were awakened, okay, and we went back to comfort, these events happen. Then we move into urgency. Okay, I got to do something. I got to fix this. I got to do, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And then after it seems fixed, we go back into comfort. So it's a constant, like, comfort urgency, comfort, urgency. So that tells me it's a human behavior and what it takes is constant practice. So it's the practice of, okay, what we practice and check your privilege. Something happens in the world. We give ourselves 24 hours. We then have a community grief circle. Then we move into action while reminding ourselves, if I lean back into comfort, it's all good. I can come back out of it. I think the word that we use in Christianity is affirmed. Sometimes people just need the affirmation that you're going to go back to your old behavior and that's okay. Just come back. Just come back. Just yeah. come back. And, and that yeah. gets rid of all the shame or like feeling bad about ourselves. We're like, God, now I can't show my face. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I think with the awakening, all of us were awakened as a black woman. I was awakened to my power. Like, Ooh, this is what this is, feels like. I've never had this, you know, yeah. which led me to that. I think it's the second to last chapter where I'm talking about my complicity with the systems because I have power. Let's talk about that. Yes. Oh, Maisha, you're so great. You're so wonderful. Your work. And a lot of the shit I was doing was harmful because of anger. Like I look at Facebook statuses from when George Floyd was murdered. And I'm like, oh, I was talking to people like that. And people were okay with that. I'm not even okay, but I've grown from there. And it's okay. No sense to shame myself. Once you get the blue check and then you get a taste of power, you start being like, Oh, I'm the shit. And a lot of followers. You have a lot of Instagram followers. Overnight. It was just, you just, you just blow up overnight. And it's like, there's no one to walk you through how to stay humble, 
how to see people as whole and human. I have definitely evolved in the last two and a half years because I had to go back to how I checked your privilege was started. Mm. This was never started for me to get a blue check and a paycheck. This wasn't started so I could keep the hustle culture and keep demeaning my family and putting them on the back burner. Everything that I talk about that I had to own up to, just buying my family gifts so they would shut up and not complain. Because I worked every day from the moment George Floyd was murdered until last December. There was never a day off, never a day off because of the power, because of the addiction to success, the addiction to, well, people see me as something valuable now because I have this blue check. And I was working literally for the blue check and the paychecks, the, the booking engagements, the the book, you know, amazing. Yes, book, like, Oh, I tied my value to, I, so I talk about it so much. I tied my value to the productivity wheel of success while my family experienced harm, while I tried to buy their love, where they asked me to stop. They asked me to not go live. I know. I, was, I had to learn to forgive myself. That's right. And to keep showing up and to go back to the original message of check your privilege, which was humanity self-compassion and really recognizing how we're all impacting each other's mental health, literally. So last summer, as I'm writing this, you know, looking at work, writing the book, (laughs) I went back to one of the, I went all the way down the feed and I went back to see what I used to talk about to get back to center. And that's what I love about the Sankofa bird, the Sankofa bird from the Akan tribe of Ghana is that the bird is walking forward, but it's always looking back to look at the lessons. And so for me, it's the practice of looking back. Where did I come from? What was the origin? Why am I doing this to build this reparative future? This book, you know, everyone's like, is this just for white folks? I've been saying lately, no, because I share my story. And any person of color who picks this up will be able to, my hope is that they can see themselves in my story and also say, okay, I also have a healing journey. And I I highlighted that I wrote that quote down and you said, my hope is that as a white person, but like you just said, I hope anybody that reads this book, you can see yourself in my story. And that's where you go into the last couple of years of, as you're actively trying to dismantle white supremacy and heal, you start lifting it up. And I appreciate you just your vulnerability with sharing this because I know this is emotional and it hits a lot of things because you just, you realize how each of us can so easily slip back into these patterns. But I just look at you and the forgiveness that you're, that you have for yourself, I think is why you have so much forgiveness for other people and so grace, grace filled. And that is what your work is. Absolutely. Thank you. And I'm looking at the time here. I don't, do we have time to talk about the master's tools and the whole Audre Lorde? Or do you want to record that like in a follow-up? Let's do that in a follow-up. Okay. Cause I feel like that could be a whole, like I have a whole page on that. Cause that just spoke to me so much. Okay. Let's do that as a separate episode. The final thing I want to talk about is one of your quotes in the book that said, I believe we are in the pruning stages of oppression. So when you look at, you know, the great white awakening that we just talked about your own journey, how we ghost looking at where we are today, this is, this is what you're thinking. We're in the pruning stages of oppression. So can you talk a little bit more into that for us? Oh, you pulled one. I was okay. Are you good with that? I don't give you any, any indication what I'm going to ask you. I just like, <laughs> no. yeah, so we're, we're in the pruning stages and you know how you prune something, you cut off the dead and the unwanting parts. Mm-hmm. All of oppression is unwanted, mm-hmm. but we're not there yet. That's the reality. Mm-hmm. But we're slowly just snipping away pieces of oppression, hopefully to a point that we can get 
compost all of it. It's all about composting. I always, I teach this. It's a, we prune, we compost. You know, a lot of people burn the system down. Don't save it. Don't compost it. Okay, that's fine. You're right. But I, I, I say pruning because we're, we're, we're getting rid of the unwanted parts that keep us from being in whole community, that keep us from even seeing our own humanity. And I think it's important for us to, to think about like our journey as <laughs> the tools, you know, the tools, the prunes, the seeds, what needs to compost, what doesn't need to compost. And so it, it was important for me to speak to the idea that we're, we're not ready to like throw the whole thing away because we've been talking about it so long, no one's ever done it. So we just snip off each piece, right? It's like, all, it's like a tree of life, right? And then there's Kimberly Crenshaw's intersectionality where there's race and age and gender and ability and, and class, like all of these different branches on this tree that need to be pruned. Because if it is a tree of life, that needs to be cut off so that something beautiful can grow. Yes. And, you know, the thing is, Andre, is that a lot of us, and I have a note here that I'm actually want to share. I had a beautiful session yesterday with uh, my, my counselor. Is One of the things is when we're talking about building a reparative future, Andrea, we can't bring what exists with us. We think about pruning and growing as a tree and being sh- and, and, the, and the foundation must be rooted in something. It's, it's remembering that like we're actually, none of us know what we're building, right? Which is why we say burn it down, but nothing changes. Mm-hmm. But the reality toward a repair to future is remembering that we're a movement. We are a moving and breathing system that things are going to change, but not according to the old paradigm of time. Like nothing is rigid. And, the, and, and when I say pruning, like the limbs off of this tree of life, it means getting rid of something that's, that's rigid, that's, that just has no more life in it. You know, um, we do, we're working to build something different and we can only do it through creativity and imagination. And, and we, I think what happens is we all think we have to know what we're doing. We all think we have to have it together and we don't, none of us know. And you talk very openly. We need to be okay with the uncertainty that we don't actually know exactly what it looks like, but, but we do know what it looks like to, like you just said, prune off the the bad and the things that aren't working and that are bearing bad fruit. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's biblical too. Not that we have to use the Bible here at all, but And that's, you know, the, a lot of that system is still in me, but the parts of the New Testament, parts of, I'm not going to get into G- God and Jesus and all that today, but it's in me because it was in my ancestors. It's in me because my family has church. It's in me. It's in me. So a lot of my work will have kind of share some of that messaging, you know? That's right. And the emphasis again is on legacy building, not mm-hmm. tearing and burning things down and fighting. But again, we're looking at the positive, the healing, the growth, the mm-hmm. building, those sort of things. And there are people who are actually building it, but because it doesn't look like what we're used to, we don't join it because right. there's no sense of urgency and perfectionism. It's like, oh, that's odd and different. I can't be a part of that. But what if that thing is the the thing that's the healing? Yeah. And I'd like to think of our co-conspirators lounge as that thing. I want you to talk in our final minutes more about one thing that really stuck with me with your book. And I think maybe you had it in your first book too, but this was such a good reminder that when we are healing ourselves. We're working on healing seven generations back and seven generations forward. And I needed, I needed that word 
because I think that also heals us from shame because we can look back and be like, I mean, I can be like, I cannot believe that I raised my daughter in this or that I once said this or taught this, but, but no, we're looking at healing, not only ourselves, but what we're doing that's going to affect our children and our children's children right now. Yeah. I love this analogy (laughs) that I've been using here lately is during the civil rights movement, Dr. King and Malcolm X and Rosa Parks and Claudette Colvin and Shirley, um, I almost said Dr. Shirley Caesar. She is a gospel (laughs) preacher. (laughs) Shirley Chisholm, they, let's say they had a bag of concrete and they were just pouring it in this bowl and they're just mixing it up. You know, they existed to mix up the bucket. Our generation, if you're what I call a high-end millennial, 40 and older, or I'll say 35, our job is to take what they mixed up and pour down the concrete, the foundation, so that the generations behind us can have something to build upon. Mm. When I think of Repair the Future, I think of, I could see Dr. King and Claudette Cope, just everyone at this big pot, Malcolm X, just throwing in this, we need this, we need that, we need that. Tick, even I can bring in Tick Not Han and Bell Hooks. I just see everybody in this pot, just, yep, compassion. Mm-hmm. Yes, non-judgment. Yes, mindfulness. Yes, calling out harm. Yes, holding the systems accountable. They're just stirring up this pot, right? And now we get to pour it out so that the foundation is set. Because after you pour out a foundation, I believe there's some workers that come behind you to set it firmly. I believe that's how this works. So we get to pour it. There's some people coming behind us, seven generations. You got the people who are going to set the foundation. You got the kids who are going to start building the frames. You got the kids who are going to start looking at our relationship to the land and how we can be more like environmentally friendly. There's just a lot that's coming, but we got to get clear in ourselves so that we can see it and see ourselves as, as building towards something new. But Letty says it best. History shows us. History has already showed us what works, what doesn't work. That's history. But then there's our own story our individual story. If we don't look at ourselves seven generations back and you can do this in therapy, it's called a geneogram. I did it. That was helpful for my journey. If you could put your family tree out there and you start pinpointing all the pain and sources of trauma and you start pulling that out of you, the old family stories, you know, it starts with you. And the problem is, is that no one knows how to look at the journey for themselves. They want to just bring all their friends. And this journey, the people who you coexisted with, if you're repairing, they're not going to want to, they may not, may or may not want to do it with you. And you got to be okay with that. But it's important for us to look back, pull out all the themes from seven generations as much as we can so that we can say, okay, it stops here. You know, if there was alcoholism, abuse, misogyny, whatever it was that was in that bloodline, if you just even started with your parents and grandparents, uncles and aunts, wrote down all the behaviors you see and you stepped into yourself and said, this ends with me. I'm going to take responsibility to heal this up. Once you know it stops with you and you start practicing that, it gets a little easier for the generations after you because they'll see you as that lived experience of, okay, my mom saw this or my dad or my parent or my partner had all this happen to them. I believe in their healing. I believe in what they want to stop and it's going to stop with me and I'm going to keep on going. But it starts with making the decision to look back first. Because if we're just going to keep working forward, walking forward, movements are just going to stay moments. I'm, I'm trying to hold back sharing sharing more that I want to because I know the time we need to <laughs> wrap up. But just know no, that- I would, I would love to hear what you were going to say. It just speaks to me so deeply and I could tear up with it because I feel like just looking at my own past and where I am as far as, you know, 
removing myself from the white evangelical church and the regrets I have of time spent there, but I'm like, you know, the healing that I've already seen in my own daughters and getting my own daughters into therapy and getting myself into therapy. And we can feel like I'm not doing enough, but it's like, that is the work right there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Getting and I- your own house, your own shit in order. Yes. And I also want to give this reminder of indigenous wisdom and ancestral knowledge is that here in the West, it's all talk therapy. Mm-hmm. But we also have to remember in other cultures, there's other practices. And the big, the biggest practice that I actually need to get call myself into is movement, moving the body. That's, you know, in the body keeps scored. There's the energy that just stays stagnant. We're not moving. We have devices all day. We can just DoorDash or Instacart. We don't move our bodies the way that our ancestors did. We don't tap into energy healing, Reiki, acupuncture, acupressure. Like when I say that this work has transformed for me and building a repair to future, you can't repair just by talking. There's action. That's and right. so to see yourself as whole and human. It's not just the talk therapy. That's a big key part of it for a lot of us that are into it. But it's also integrating the somatics, the yeah. movement the meditation, the breath work, the mindfulness, the Reiki, the being restored to humanity. We don't talk about that enough. And like I said, if I was able to rewrite <laughs> and I'm not rewriting, I'm writing a new book. We'll say that. Mm-hmm. I am looking forward to including that in the next book. The it's idea. a full embodiment healing. It's it is not whole, just, yes. I'm glad you clarified that. Yeah. It's whole body healing. I think that's when I, when I was getting the kids diagnosed, there was a book called the whole brain child. And I remember reading this book and I'm like, well, what about the whole brain adult, right? If we're all lifelong learners, we can actually learn to be whole brain adults, social, emotional regulation skills that we don't have because we didn't learn them. Movement, somatics, talk therapy, whole body healing, not just one way. You do that in your book because at the end of chapters, you encourage like, okay, it's time to take a break and get out in nature or create something like you're very specific. And like I said, I need to, I'm going to go back through your book because I read it quickly for this interview, but I didn't have the chance to do that. And so, although you wish you would say you would have written more, you do a very good job of being like, no, this is not just talking and reading like this. This is a full body and full embodiment of healing. So thank you for your work. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yes. Okay. We need to wrap up this, this segment, but we've chatted that I think we're going to have you back for a part two to talk about the master's tools and dismantling the master's house, because I, I have that a whole page of my notes. And I think we can have a whole episode on that. So we will have you back to do that. But for this first, first interview, tell us Maisha, where you can be found Instagram, your website, people can sign up if they're interested, buy your book, all of that. Absolutely. So you can go to checkyourprivilege.co. You can read a little bit about me there. Uh, Sign up for courses, workshops, buy the book, get the free gifts that come with purchasing the book, uh, which is our niche down your journey journal. There's a couple of bonuses for, for ordering the book. You can order it from bookshop or Amazon or your favorite uh, independent or like national retailer. And your book comes out August 9th. Is that correct? Out August 9th. Yes. Okay. And this episode will release probably just right around that time. So the book will be just about to come out. And then of course you're on Instagram. Yes. I'm on Instagram as Maisha T. Hill and or as Check Your Privilege. That's right. And then Check Your Privilege, you have uh, on that website, different levels that people can sign up to commit to or recommit to like myself. Um, We have our Check Your Privilege. We have our our one-year immersion of breaking the addiction of privilege. It's a one-year 
one year experience where we'll really break the content down from that workshop. Um, we also have our co-conspirators lounge. There are multiple commitment levels for the one cup of coffee at Starbucks a month. You can be in community, get your monthly masterclass. There's, we got so much more now, monthly masterclass, nonviolent communication trainings, like two or three a week. We have a trauma release sessions. We have bi-weekly grief circle, men's group. So we're trying to, we're really just, I'm just the mayor of the community. And we're really just trying to create whole body experiences for everyone. You have a lot there. So I see, I see why you probably were working round the clock in 2021, because you have a lot yeah. that you've created. I'm grateful now to have a, to have the team and the community help so that I don't have to do all the things. Yeah. I think I was thinking back the first class that I took of yours. I think that's where I was introduced to you. Letty Weeds was uh, the Rachel Hollis. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the first time when all of that happened. And I think y'all recently re-released released that. Yeah, that's also been re-released and there's a workshop coming up for that, uh, I believe this week or next. I thought it was coming up. I'll put it, I'll make sure we put it in the show notes and advertise all of that, okay? Okay, sounds Okay, Maisha, I know you have children to get to in a, in a summer day here. So thank you so much for just another hour of your time and for your voice and your work and the healing. You are so welcome. Thank you for having me.